trekking with us. I understand it's a bit of a different Sunday, lots of extra moving pieces today, um, but it's really important. And uh, my name's Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at Hope City. It is my privilege to get to speak to you this morning to help us explore the Bible together. And um, before we get into the morning, I guess I've got to say just how excited I am to see that 2023 goal um, that we set out with ages ago. He's going to fix it. He fixed it. I want to say as well that sound is a really tough gig. People only notice when you get it wrong. It's really hard work. We appreciate our sound team. who are working away behind the scenes every week to make things work for us. But 2023 was just this dream, this goal, this uh, number on a piece of paper. And uh, as I've been getting to spend a bit more time with Pat over the last months, it's been really exciting to start to believe this next phase really could happen. And uh, I'm optimistic, imagining we really could just next year be a a church planting church ourselves. It is a stretch, um, but it's possible. So if you ever feel like this morning is uh, a little bit full, there are a few too many people in the room, it's slightly hard to get a seat. That's exactly what we're looking for, and we have a plan. So there you go. On to the Bible. Right. Um, At first glance, the passage we're going to look at this week uh, might seem pretty remote, um, pretty uninteresting. Uh, We've been following the story of uh, a mission team from one of the very first churches uh, with a key leader, Paul, um, at the helm for these past uh, many, many weeks now. And um, they've traveled some huge distances. They've been to all sorts of places. They've had some amazing breakthroughs. They've also had their share of serious trouble. And at the close of last week's episode, right, we saw trouble catch up with them at a place called Berea. And uh, Paul was rushed away to safety across the sea, and he arrives in Athens. And you might think, Athens, Paul, that's going to be a nice holiday. You could enjoy uh, a week there, Um, because even back then, it was a bit of a tourist hotspot. Speaking of which, um, my family and I were actually in Athens um, for a short break just before Easter. And I have to tell you, it was lovely, particularly coming from Scotland, kind of around about Easter time into Athens. That was a really good choice. I highly recommend it. Um, Promise some holiday snaps. So here you go. Um, This is, there you go, us, Um, but the the, the Parthenon as well. And this is my family with another another part of that uh, big place up there. Now, Athens. Athens is famous for its thinkers. Uh, It's famous for its democracy, um, but it's also famous really for its temples. And you can just see some of them there, like bang in the middle of the city. There's this huge sticky-up rock thing, and on the top of the sticky-up rock thing are these gigantic temples. You just can't miss it. The, the really big one on the right there is dedicated to um, Athena, the, the goddess Athena, and uh, pr- planning regulations in Athens keep all the buildings low, so you can always see the center. Uh, at night, it has special lighting, so it's kind of like a Christmas tree. It goes bing and comes on and sticks out. Well, The amazing thing is that exact same temple uh, would have been there, uh, a little bit less um, destroyed than that, um, but it would have been there and already would have been ancient by the time Paul visited it 2,000 years ago. It would have been hundreds of years old by that point. Uh, A few less broken pieces, a few less borrowed pieces, mentioning no marbles um, that might be in our museum but maybe belong somewhere else. Anyway... For all it's the same, right, it would be reasonable to think Athens would be pretty different 2,000 years ago. That it would be a bit of a different world, really, that it wouldn't have that much in contact with the sort of world we live in here today. But one of the big surprises for us is just how similar 
It really was. Once you look under the covers, once you think about how things work and what things mean, sure, you wouldn't find in our modern Western world us building gigantic temples um, to gods, at least not in the West so much. But one layer behind that, we have a lot in common with their world. See, the, the basic idea with those ancient Greek gods is that there are things in the world that can make life work for you if you scratch their back, if you pursue them. That there are things in our world that if you upset or anger them can crush you. Well, that is actually not a very foreign idea at all, is it? I mean, think about being popular. Now, when, when people exclude me, when people unfriend me, I'm crushed, right? Because inside I think, well, if only I was popular, then I could be happy. Then life would work for me. So I, I chase after that. I'm willing to make sacrifices to that you know, idol almost of popularity. I'll be whoever I need to be in order for people around me to approve of me. I'll do what people want me to so they applaud. I have to serve that idol so things go well with me. Or, or think about being rich or successful. Now, surely that is what is going to make life work out for you, right? We can think, well, without that, without riches, without success, I'm just going to be crushed. Life is never going to work for me. So I need to pursue that. I need to sacrifice things for that. Maybe I need to sacrifice time with my family, or I need to sacrifice my ethics or my morals. Maybe I need to sacrifice my health. Things we sacrifice for or sacrifice to, the, the temples we worship at, the, the gods of this age. Can you see how there is this similarity underneath? We think there are powers. We think there are powers that if we serve them, will bless us and make things work. And if we ignore them, will crush us. Well, that means when we read today's passage, we're going to have perhaps the best opportunity in the whole of the book of Acts to see what Paul, this key early leader in the church, would have done, would have said if he was here today. So it's a really relevant passage, actually. Jennifer is going to read for us this morning, and we're in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 17. We're going to start at verse 16. You might want to keep this open, so if you've got one of the blue Bibles, it's page 1113, uh, Acts chapter 17, that's the big 17, and then you're looking for verse 16, the tiny 16, page 1113, and uh, we'll refer back to it in just a moment. Let me find what Jennifer actually needs. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, 
I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. The past God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear, again, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thanks, Jennifer. The perfectly balanced microphone is an art form, I have to tell you. <clears throat> there is obviously a lot going on in that passage. We're not going to have time this morning to uh, look at everything. Uh, we're going to focus in on two big points. First, we're going to look at Paul's method. Uh, we're going to see what we can learn from the way he goes about speaking about engaging with this new audience, and the short answer is there's a lot to learn from that. And then second, we're going to look at Paul's message. Uh, we're going to dig into what he actually has to say, what he particularly brings to those people, and uh, see how that is still something that is significant um, for us today. So method, then message, which is M&M, which is mmm, tasty. Um, okay, so what's his method? Well, First, I guess the thing you have to see here is he gets to know the world that he's trying to reach. He gets to know the world he's trying to reach. In our first verse, he sees the city is full of idols. But he hasn't just taken a cursory glance at this whole city. He's walked around and looked carefully at what there is. He's even read the, 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 the full tour. You know, you go to the museums and they've got those signs. They've got too many words for almost anyone except my son Cameron to read. And he reads the words underneath these things. And um, he calls out that particular altar in his uh, inscription. Remember, he, he, he says, um, I, I found, as I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So he studies the people he trying to reach. If you wanted to do something similar today, what would you do? Well, the altars we worship at, they're not on display uh, around our city in the same way, um, but you get a glimpse of them, right? Look at the adverts that were shown on TV. Look at the life we're being sold as the good life. You get a sense from that for what it is that our culture worships. 
You can see it in media, uh, in films. Who is the hero and what does it mean to be a hero? This tells you. You hear it from the mouths of our celebrities. But I guess even as I'm saying that and you think about that kind of broad sweep of what is the world we live in, it's really important we remember we're trying to reach individuals, not just like a, an average Edinburgh dweller, if there was such a thing as a kind of average Edinburgh resident. Even Athens wasn't just flavor, uh, one flavor. You see, in verse 18, there were Epicureans and Stoics. Well, those two groups, they think about the world completely differently from one another. Uh, Epicureans' watchword would be enjoy. The gods are so remote. Really, they don't care what's going on here at all. They don't influence our world. They don't have any interest in it. We live, we die. Do what pleases you. Uh, Diogenes is one of the Epicureans. He sums it up like this. Nothing to fear in God. Nothing to feel in death. It's just the end. Pleasure can be attained. Pain can be endured. How's that for a pretty modern worldview, right? That sounds like the sort of way we could live today. So that's the Epicureans on one hand. The Stoics on the other hand, their watchword would be endure. Uh, there's no God above. There's just God within. God within us all. Our world, it's ruled by fate. We just have to endure it and do our duty. So that's two radically different views. So we have to know the world we're trying to reach. And if we want to know the world we're trying to reach, it's really about knowing the people, the individuals that we'd love to reach. And as a church, we use this acronym BLESS quite a lot to help us think about small steps all of us could take to try and share the hope we have with the world around us, to remind us of them. And um, this letter L is so important for us. It stands for listen with care, pay attention to people's dreams and pain. Listen for evidence of God's work in their life, it says. What do the people around you really believe? What does your good friend so-and-so actually believe specifically? How, how do they think life works? You are never going to learn that just through watching the labels they wear on the outside. You'll need to ask good questions. You'll need to listen with care. You'll need to be interested in and alert to what they're willing to share with you. And you'd be surprised how often people are willing to share. You'd be surprised how many people would love to have anyone have any interest in them whatsoever by giving away your attention to the world around you is an amazing way to interact with our friends. So first, know the world. Know the individuals particularly that you're trying to reach. And I think the second thing we see from Paul's method here is that you have to navigate their world. You have to navigate inside their world. Notice that when Paul's speaking to them, he uses their language. He uses their culture. He uses their symbols. Rather than starting from Abraham and David, characters that would have no place at all in their conception of the world or the Jewish idea of Messiah, a concept that doesn't really compute for the Greeks, he starts from the common ground of creation instead. So he's found a meeting place with them. Rather than quoting the Jewish scriptures, which were so important to Paul, they were the bedrock of his faith. Instead, as his authority here, he quotes their poets. He's, he's navigating on their map, as it were. He's working with their language. He's using their symbols. Now, again, thinking about, well, what did that mean for us? What could that mean for us today? Maybe there is common ground you can agree on with the world around you, somewhere to start from. Maybe there's something like the value of each and every diverse human. Or maybe there's something like the idea that human brokenness is the root of so many of the problems in our world. 
and I guess thinking about the resources you might use to speak to people, well, the Bible carries no more weight than Harry Potter for most people in our world, probably less. So quoting the Bible might not help. It might not make sense to them at all. But maybe there are storylines in films that mirror parts of the Bible that you could draw on. Maybe there are lyrics from songs that get across the heart that you want to communicate. Maybe there are reflections from the philosophers of this age that actually we can agree with that point towards the truth of God. So two things here. Know the world you're trying to reach. Know the individuals particularly. And secondly, navigate their world. You have to start from inside their world to help them. Some of what we learn from Paul's method as he engages. There's more I could say, but we don't have time this morning. Um, what about his message? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at this morning. What's his message? Well, I think as I've been reflecting on Paul's speech to the Areopagus, I think he wants them to see that their idols have failed them. They offer sacrifices at all these shrines. They build these giant, tall, amazing temples. Athens is full to the brim with this stuff. One ancient commentator says there were more gods in Athens than the rest of the whole country. It was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. But despite all of that religion, it has failed them. It's in vain. The truth is that God alone is creator, and he's the only one who is sovereign in the world. That's what it tells us in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. That is, he's in control. He's the authority here. But get this, a little bit further on in verse 26, he says that God appointed the times in history. He appointed the boundaries of their lands for these nations of the world. It is God who is in charge of the extent of empires. It's God who's in charge of their rise, and it's God who's in charge of their fall. Now, what's not quite so obvious to us as it would have been to the original audience is how this has worked out for Greece and for Athens. You see, Greece was a great ancient nation, a huge global power. Athens was the heart of that. But despite all its idols, all its temples, all its so-called gods, all the offerings they had made to them, what is Greece now? Well, it's been shattered by the Persians first and then swallowed whole by the Romans. Athens is a shadow of its former self. It's a city far into decline. It trades on its grand history and its past. But anyone who was honest would have told you that it was on the downhill. It is God who has appointed Greece's rise, and God who has appointed Greece's fall. It's times, it's boundaries. Their idols have failed them. They're worshipped and sacrificed to in vain. And that is just as true today as it was back then. Remember we talked about how we repackage idolatry? These things we have to serve and make offerings to because they're going to make our life work. These things that will crush us if we don't serve them. Well, of course, these so-called gods fail us too. We worship them in vain just the same. If they haven't failed you already, they surely will. But that's not the end of the story because Paul tells us that God had a plan. He had a, a, a purpose in this. See, verse 27 starts with, God did this so that. It's a really kind of purposeful act, purposeful control. He did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. 
and find him. It's not just a clockwork universe unfolding, the gods distant and disinterested. It's not just fate working its way out like these Stoics would have told you if you'd asked them. This is God's plan working its way out, and he has a purpose in it, and it is to show us the futility of the things that we worship and to drive us to seek him, the true God, instead, to seek a, a real hope, to seek true power, to seek a real connection with the divine. And their idols have failed them, but Paul tells them the true God is near. He's not far from any one of us. And the tragedy is that God is so near to them, and yet still so far, still they do not connect. The verb translated, you might reach out for him, that is used of somebody reaching out in the dark, groping around to see if they can find what's right in front of them. You ever had that experience? There's something on your bedside table, but it's the middle of the night and dark. You're like, is it there? That's how he describes them reaching out for God. They're ignorant, Paul says. That's got a smart when you are the city famed for your wisdom and your knowledge. They're ignorant, but that is what they are. They think they know so much, and yet when it comes to connecting with the, wrong tr the one true God, they're totally ignorant, and that's part of why it's so important for Paul and for us to keep on speaking about Jesus into this world that is so often groping for the truth and yet ignorant of what is right next to them. We keep on helping people explore what the Bible has to say. Keep on helping people journey towards Jesus in faith. The, the Greeks, like so many around us, are close. And then there's the punchline for Paul's message. Things must now change. God commands all people to repent. That is to turn, to change, to alter their direction. Judgment is coming, he says, and that includes God's judgment on those who have worshipped other so-called gods who have sacrificed to these idols, whether they're statues in an ancient temple or the things that we serve today. For all the care with which Paul begins his message, when he brings in repentance and resurrection, that is the end of the conversation. Though some here, there's no breakthrough. Um, the results in Athens, if you compare them to how the results are described in the other cities that this mission team have been through, they, they have to seem poor. Yeah, some respond. But the story up to this point, time and time again, has been many. It was many in Philippi. It was many in Berea. Next week, it will be many again in Corinth and many in Ephesus. Here, it's only some. I... I don't think that's an accident in Luke's writing. I don't think he's just overlooked this or sloppy word choice or inconsistency. And we also know, I guess, we know that churches were founded in many of these other cities that Paul visited. We know that because we've got letters written to them later or mentions of them later. There is no evidence of a church planted in Athens. I've been thinking about why. Why is it such hard ground in Athens? Why does it seem so difficult? Paul's method, we've seen here, it looks like a great method. Paul's message is clear. But resurrection is alien to Greek thought, to Greek religion. I think the bigger problem than that is repentance is alien to Greek thought, to Greek religion, to our world to our world's beliefs. These, these people in Athens, well, our narrator gives it to us straight. He says, all the, Ath all, all the Athenians, all the foreigners who live there, they spent their time doing nothing. 
but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now, they might claim because of that, we are so open-minded. We want to learn everything. We're fascinated by all the things going on. But that's not really true. They just want to talk about the ideas and keep them out there as intellectual curiosities. They're not going to change their mind. They're not going to change their life. One um, clever commentator puts it this way. They're seekers after the curious rather than seekers of the curios, which is a Greek word for lord or master. There you go. It's academics, humor. It's not very funny. Um, but they're seekers after the curious rather than seekers after a lord. And I think the truth is it's that way in our world today. People might claim they're open-minded. They might claim they want to go wherever the truth will lead them. But really, they are not interested in finding the truth because it's an encounter with Jesus as Lord, as master, that must mean change. That's the biggest problem a lot of people I have with Christianity is I can't carry on doing whatever I want to do all the time anymore. It tells us we are in the wrong and we need to change. So I guess I need to ask us this morning, are we really seeking? Are we really seeking the truth? Are we really seeking God or would repentance, if it was required of us, if change was required of us, would that be just as alien as it was to these Athenians? Are there ways in which we want to live that we simply won't accept any challenge to? We're not interested in another voice. Are there things we want to call good that we can't accept another opinion on? Are there things we're really not seeking at all? Do we only want to find at the end of the day a God who already agrees with all of our positions, all of our thoughts? I think if that's the real bottom line, what that means is we are setting ourselves up as God rather than him. We're saying, I'm the one who makes the rules. I'm the one who decides the way we shall go. I'm the one who calls the shots here. And you know what that is? That is the ultimate form of idolatry. It's not idolatry of a statue or idolatry of fame. That is putting me up as the statue in the temple. Me is the thing that must be worshipped and served in the end. And we have to read the warning in this passage. We have to hear it. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, those are serious words. Those are confrontational words. But it is God's truth, and it is better that we are confronted now than when it is too late, because this same Jesus will return to judge. Well, he's the only one who can give us hope in the face of that judgment. Hope that everything that we should be judged for, everything that we would be declared guilty of, well, Jesus has already dealt with it at the cross for us. Now, if this isn't your hope yet. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. And just like this passage tells us, this is not far from you or out of your reach. It's not beyond your grasp. God is holding out this hope to you this morning in Jesus. And you can take hold of it by faith right now. But it will require change. We can't soft pedal that or give you another way. It will require repentance but it can be yours today. And even if others around you, like at the end of this passage, 
are going to sneer and mock if you choose to make this change. If others around you are going to say, I must hear more. I need to talk more. I need more time. Just like Dionysius and Damaris in the passage, you still can believe this morning. I want to encourage you to take that step today. Waiting is not a good choice here. If you're here in person, come speak to me afterwards. If you're with us online, you can click the request prayer button and Sarah's available to talk and pray with you. If you're watching a recording, just drop us an email. Uh, Don't let this opportunity pass. Now, I know we've covered a lot of ground this morning, looked at a lot of different things. I think there's so much in this passage for us to consider, but I want to give us just a few seconds to reflect quietly on what God is saying to you about speaking, what God is saying to you about seeking, and then I'll pray for us. Lord God, thank you that hope is not far from anyone around us. That you have chosen to enter into our world, to come close, to make yourself known, to make yourself accessible. Help us as your people, as we try and make your name known, to to do that in a way that will help people see and find you. And yet, Lord, we know it's not just finding you but there also must be change. I pray for anyone here today who is struggling with accepting that, who's finding it hard to let go of control in their life. And Lord, I pray that you would grant them today the faith to say yes to you as Lord, as Master. Thank you that you have given us hope, even in the face of this judgment where none of us have a right to stand, where all of us would fall, that you've given us hope through Jesus, through his death in our place, through the forgiveness that can be ours because of that. Oh, Lord, I pray, please, would you help more people share the hope that we have in Jesus. Ian and the band are going to come lead us in a song of response. Thanks, Mark.